Hello. <laughs> Harvest festivals have changed since I was young. Uh, I used to go uh, to school. It was all that fresh stuff, but it's, it's changed a bit over the years, hasn't it? Uh, there were potatoes, vegetables, and somehow always at our harvest festival at school, uh, there were always uh, a pineapple uh, in the middle. I don't know whether you had the same thing. I had a look through some pictures this week at harvest festivals. It does seem uh, most harvest festivals seem to have a pineapple, uh, but we don't uh, have one at ours at the back. Uh, but come rain or shine, it didn't matter what the, the year had been like in terms of the harvest, they'd always have one of these uh, in the middle. The man from Del Monte must have loved this time of year in my part of Yorkshire. But with some people, with our Harvest Festival, it almost became a competition. You know, who could bring the most or the biggest produce? Most, I think, didn't actually really know where it was going, but what they cared about was sort of the giving rather than the receiving. Does it matter how much you give, though? Does it matter how much of an effort you make? Well, the passage before us this morning, I didn't pick it for Harvest, it's just the next one that we've been going through Uh, in the book uh, that we're looking at. But it seems it's quite relevant to that question. Because some people think that the more you give to charity, the more brownie points you have with God, so to speak. If you want to go to heaven, they say, give lots to charity, try to be nice to people, keep as many of the Ten Commandments as you can, even if you can only remember about two. And I've met that idea so many times, it's almost part of our national psyche, I think. When I was at uni, I did religious studies in my first year, along with French and linguistics. Our seminar tutor, uh, seminar tutor told the group that Christians believe that you're saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. I challenged him, he was a, a Buddhist, an expert in Buddhism, and he admitted that he just assumed that was what Christians believed. He couldn't actually show me anywhere in the Bible that it said it. Well, in the passage that we've got before us here, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that has got hoodwinked by those kinds of ideas. Some false teachers have come in and started teaching that the way to be in God's good books, the way to go to heaven, so to speak, is keeping the rules that we find in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments, the food laws, circumcision, and so on and so on. There are 613 of them. Paul is writing to them to remind them that that was not the message that he brought them. That was not the message that they first received. That's not the truth, is the most important thing that he's telling them. So far he's been telling them his story, as to how he received the gospel straight from Jesus. How he was confident to preach it. So much so that he didn't even check it with the apostles for 14 years. He preached it all that time. And our passage starts off with him telling off one of the other apostles, the chief apostle Peter, about this very issue. He's telling them this because he wants them to know that so sure of the gospel is he, he will even go and rebuke another apostle, even Peter, if they're wrong about this issue. He calls Peter a hypocrite for preaching the gospel, but not practicing what he preaches. But to show us how he's not practicing what he preaches, he's got to show us the gospel that they both preach. So that's what we're going to start with, and then we'll come back to what Peter was doing at the end. So three points this morning. First of all, the truth. The gospel is faith alone in Christ alone. Let me read to you verses 15 to 17 again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also have we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now it's unclear here exactly whether Paul is continuing his rebuke of Peter speaking it to him, or whether he's just carrying on his point. But either way, he does carry on what he's saying. He says there, we may not be Gentile, non-Jewish sinners, says Paul. But because of the gospel, we know that's not what it's about anyway. To be part of God's people, to be assured of a place in heaven, in glory, it's not about whether you're Jewish or not. It's not about whether you keep the Jewish law or not. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me pause there, because that is huge if you think about it. What Paul is reminding Peter of here is that our entry ticket to heaven, our membership of the kingdom, is not based on how well we've done on keeping a set of rules. It's not about how many of the Ten Commandments we've kept. It's not about what ceremonies we've been through. It's not how big your harvest donation at the back was. I mean, how many tins would you need to give to get to heaven? I want to hammer this home, because if I had a pound for every time someone had wrongly told me this, I'd be able to afford a house in Ilkley. That's how much. Here is what Paul is saying. Being good will not get you to heaven. Trying your best to keep the Ten Commandments is not what God is looking for. If that were the entry exam, then everybody would fail. Some might fail it spectacularly, and others less so, but we'd all still fail. Verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let me give you what a children's Bible version says of that. No one is put right with God by doing what the law says. To be justified, to be declared not guilty, innocent, worthy of heaven if you like. None of us will get that by following thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, etc. says Paul. He'll say at the end of our passage in verse 21 that if that were the way to heaven, then Jesus died for nothing. If being good could put us in God's good books and get us to glory, then think about it. Why did Jesus have to die? <coughs> Didn't Jesus die to get us to heaven, to save us? Well, how does that work if we can get there by just trying to be good? What was the point of Jesus' death if keeping the rules was actually the way to heaven? <coughs> and that's why Jesus' death plays little part in religious systems that tell us that we're saved by our behaviour. Jesus becomes not a saviour who saves you, but a teacher who teaches you how to be nice to one another. When they say they follow Jesus, what they mean is that they try and keep the golden rule. That they try and follow Jesus' moral teaching. That is not what Paul is talking about here. So what is he talking about? He's talking about faith alone in Jesus alone. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved from hell, secure in glory, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Faith there means belief. It's the same word in the original as, as faith, they're just two words for the same thing. But it's not believing in Jesus like you believe, might believe in fairies or goblins or something like that. 
It's not believing that he existed. Jesus told people to believe in him when they were stood face to face. So it's not like he's saying, believe I exist. Because that wouldn't work. What it means is placing our trust in what Jesus did on the cross. And not what we do in our lives to set us right with God. It's doing that to bring us into friendship with God. The Bible says that we have broken that friendship with God through our sin, through the wrong things that we do. That we've walked away from God, spit in his face and gone our own way. Now with most friendships, that's not a real problem. You just stop being friends. But God is our creator. He's the judge of the world. And now we don't have him as a friend, we have him as a judge. And no amount of rule keeping will fix that relationship. A judge is not interested in how many laws you've kept, but how many laws you've broken. And all of us, whatever background we come from, have failed to keep the law of God. So how do we become friends with God again? How do we now escape the judgment that we face? Well, Jesus died willingly on the cross to take the judgment that we deserve, but also to mend that friendship that we broke. He made peace between us and God by taking all that hurt and wrath on himself. And that work has been done for us by Christ. But that doesn't mean then that it applies to all. It applies to those who grasp hold of it by faith, by trusting in Christ, in what he has done to put us right with God. We leave our old works behind, whether works of evil or works of law. And through what Christ has done, we are justified, declared innocent by the judge, by faith alone, in Christ alone. In Christ, all the punishment has been taken. Justice has been exacted and the relationship mended. So it's in him that we put our trust, not in our own goodness, not in our own rule keeping or righteousness, but in Christ, in what he did and not what we do. And that means now all can come in, whether we've lived like Mother Teresa or Lady Marmalade, all of us can come in. Those who have lived wilder lives tend to be quite happy about this. Those are the people that Jesus hung around with. That's why Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. Those who have lived tamer lives, more rule-keeping lives, tend to be more upset about this. If you know the story of the prodigal son, you'll know that was exactly the case. The younger son goes away, squanders his father's wealth, parties like it's 1999 BC, loses it all, comes to his senses and comes home to his father. The father is happy. The older brother is not. This is what the older brother says. Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. The older brother is the law keeper. But he hates his brother and he resents his father. Because he wants his father to treat him based on his record of obedience, not on his father's love for him. A love that the father has for both sons. When we push the law keeper card, we're asking God to treat us like an employee, not like one of his children. Paul's going to develop that theme as he goes on through the letter. But here's where we got to. The good news that Paul is proclaiming, the gospel 
is that Jesus Christ has come, died on a cross, and opened the door to renewed friendship with the Father and eternity with him in glory. The way we walk through that door is by trusting in Jesus and all that he's done for us. We receive it as a gift by faith, trust, belief. It's not about works of the law, obedience, trying to be good. It's actually about God giving it us as a gift. The jargon word in the Bible for that is grace. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. But this grace that he's preaching here, it poses two massive problems for a lot of people. One, people don't like hearing that we're all in the same boat. That no one gets to heaven on their own merit. We like to think, I think, that in the world there are good people and there are bad people. And the good people go to heaven and the bad people don't. The idea that all of us are in the same category in need of rescue, and that all of us must come in the same way, some find that offensive. They are, why would you put me in with those people? Two, it also makes it sound in some ways like it doesn't matter how you behave. Like God is sort of encouraging evil behaviour. People say, you know, surely if we preach this, it'll make people behave worse, not better. Well, Paul addresses both those questions in our next section. The lie. The gospel encourages evil. Have a look at verses 17 to 21. But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let me take a moment to change your perspective on something. Most of us here, I imagine, will have queued in traffic. Some of us live in Otley, so we're very, very used to, to that. I live north of the bridge, um, so it seems like I spend half my life queuing uh, in traffic. Often as we're coming out of our estate to sort of cross the bridge, there'll be about 20 cars worth of traffic before you even get to the bridge. But here's the thing that I forget. Here's the thing that I need to change my perspective about. I'm not only in traffic, I am traffic, okay? I'm not just facing a problem, I'm part of the problem. You see, there are actually 21 cars in that queue. I was just blind to it before, I was missing out myself. And the problem here in Galatians is that it's gone from now we Jews and Gentile sinners, two categories, to just everybody being sinners. We too have been found to be sinners. The gospel says that all have fallen short, all have sinned. So the Bible and the gospel have increased the number of sinners. Now everyone's a sinner. All of us are found to be rebels. There's an extra car in the queue. Does that mean then that Christ is a servant of sin? Is Jesus pro-sin? Now that may sound like a crazy question, but it generally comes up after someone has explained the gospel clearly. Also, because we've understood Paul is, is what, uh, we've understood Paul right here, 
It seems like Paul is saying, if you become a Christian, you can do whatever you like, and God will forgive you. And that also seems to make Christ sound like he's encouraging sin. That people will do bad things. If the rules are gone and the punishment for sin is gone, wouldn't that encourage Christians to live sinful lives? So the question, is Jesus a servant of sin? Is Jesus pro-sin? It doesn't quite sound that crazy when you think about it that way. But Paul is clear. Certainly not, says Paul. Never. Jesus is not a servant of sin. Jesus is so anti-sin that when I came to him as a sinner, he had me crucified. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul, verse 20. It is no longer I who live. The old Paul is dead, says Paul. Sinner Paul has died. I've left that old life behind, including the law. I have the law then, but all the law could do was deliver death. It couldn't save me, it could only damn me. If I rebuild the old life, verse 18, with its sin and its laws, then all I do will be back where I started, proven to be a transgressor, a sinner. That old life couldn't save me from my sin. It could only show me that I was sinful. So why would I want to go back to that? Why go back to sin when it's end is death? Why go back to the law when all the law could do was deliver judgment? Surely that's not going forwards, that's going backwards. Because that old Paul is dead, says Paul. Because when we put our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit connects us spiritually to Christ. He unites us together as one. We become in Christ, as Paul will go on to say. So that what is true of Christ is true of us. So when Christ was crucified on that Roman cross, Paul was crucified on that cross. His own life has gone. And yet... He's still alive. It doesn't say it here, but we also know from elsewhere that those who are in Christ are also raised with him to new life. Really, they think that's what it's getting at in verse 19, that they might live for God. But Paul here doesn't talk about being in Christ yet. He talks about Christ being in him. Christ now fills him by his spirit, so much so that it's like Christ lives through him. His character, his heartbeat, is now Christ's. He's growing in Christ-likeness day by day as he puts his trust in him. What does the Christian life consist of? It's not rule-keeping, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Faith in the Son of God. Faith, it turns out, is not just our entry ticket to heaven. It's the Christian's way of life. We don't start by faith in Christ and then progress on to the law. No, we start by faith and we live by faith. We start off leaving our old way of life behind, not trusting in ourselves but in Christ. And we continue on that way. The gospel is not just the beginning It's what we continue in. To quote a great Christian song, the gospel is the garden, not the gate. The gospel is the marriage, not the date. It's not the reservation, it's the flight. 
It's more than just the sunrise, it's the light. That's the idea that Paul is trying to get across here. Faith is not just how we start, but how we go on, how we live. Who or what is our faith in? The Son of God, Jesus, who Paul tells us here loved us and gave himself for us. He points us again by that gave himself for us back to the cross. We don't move on from that as Christians. We never outgrow the cross. We never outlive the cross. We need to remember God's love towards us, God's sacrifice of his son for us, as we live by faith day by day by day. And it's a message that humbles us, that levels us, that causes us to live for him with all that we have. But coming back to the beginning of our passage, that's not what Peter is doing with the gospel. And so our final point, the proper outcome, living in step with the truth. Let me read to you verses 11 to 14 again. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, uh, sorry, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is why Paul has a problem with Peter. Peter believes the truth. Peter rejects the lie that the gospel produces ungodliness, but he's not living in line with that. In verse 14. One of the effects of the gospels is that it's a great leveler. All come into the kingdom on the same terms, in the same way. And far from being offensive, that's something wonderful. There's not a Jewish way to heaven and a non-Jewish way to heaven. There's not a black way and a white way. There's not a rich way and a poor way. There's not one way for women and another way for men. There's just one for all. Faith alone in Jesus alone. But that means that we can't treat people like Peter does when the gospel has made us one. We can't let old rivalries and differences get in the way. Peter will go on to, Paul will go on to say in the next chapter in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That means the old ways of thinking must go. But the false brothers, the circumcision party who've been influencing Peter, they want to go back to that old way of thinking. They want to build up what was broken down, uh, just in a different way. And Peter has been brought into that way of thinking. Even Barnabas, Paul's friend and co-worker in the gospel, gets carried along with this. They reintroduce racial segregation when the gospel had broken it down. After Peter's vision in Acts 10, Peter had been eating with non-Jews, presumably eating non-kosher food too. But these false brothers have got him going backwards. Eating on separate tables from the non-Jews makes it sound like apartheid South Africa or, or the US under segregation. Jews on this table, non-Jews on that table. 
And Paul sees this and he's appalled, rightly appalled. Paul opposes Peter to his face publicly. Your conduct is not in line with the gospel, Peter. How can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews when you've been living like a Gentile? It's hypocrisy. Your message is if you want to eat with us, then you have to become Jewish. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel welcomes all who have faith in Jesus Christ, whatever their standing with the law might be. Now that does not mean behaviour doesn't matter. In fact, Paul rebuking Peter for his behaviour shows us that behaviour still matters. What it means though is that a Christian's behaviour must be in step with the truth of the gospel. We don't go rebuilding the law because we died to the law, verse 19. We don't go rebuilding our old sinful selves either because we died to sin too. Paul doesn't preach law. Paul doesn't preach license. What he preaches is liberty. Liberty from the law and from sin. Liberty in Christ is what he calls it in verse 4. Living by faith in Christ day by day. Now we can use the law as a guide to the things that are pleasing to God. That's why we can do sermons in Exodus and Leviticus like we've been doing uh, in the past. But we're not under it in the same way that the Jews were in the Old Testament. Again, more of this as we go through the letter. But what we see here is that behaviour does matter. And it must be in line with the truth of the gospel. We keep in step with the gospel. We walk by the Spirit, Paul will say later on in the letter. And Paul rebukes Peter on the basis that his behaviour is not in line with the gospel he professes to believe. And so the questions, though, then come back to us, don't they? If we're believers this morning, that question is for us, not just for Paul and Peter. Is our behaviour in line with the truth of the gospel? Do we build up barriers that Jesus has broken down? Do I count myself in a different category to other Christians? Do I view myself as a sinner saved by grace, just like every other believer? Am I building for my new life or am I rebuilding my old life? So easy, isn't it, to fall back into old habits, old sins, old thought patterns and attitudes. But those things are gone, says Paul. Do I count my life as crucified with Christ? My old self, dead, and now belonging to Christ. Does my behaviour day to day match that? Am I living for Christ daily? Now part of that might be bringing some tins to Harvest Festival. Even a whole pineapple. But not as a backhander to earn God's favour. Not as a way to sort of get into his good books. But as a response to the gift of grace that God has given us in Christ. Not to earn merit, but to give thanks in the end, it's about thankfulness. Giving thanks to the God who gave us everything for us, that we might be saved by trusting in Christ alone. Is your harvest basket full? Well, know this. God gives much better gifts. He gave his son that we might trust in him. Let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for the gospel. Father, thank you that whatever mistakes we've made, whatever we've done, there is a welcome for us if we will turn in faith and repentance to Christ. Help us not just to see that as our way in, but help us to live that out daily. Help us to live in the gospel. And Father, may our behaviour reflect that as we love one another, as we break down those barriers that Christ has broken down, and as with one voice we worship and praise you together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.